It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no sheets. The land of fucking with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Sixty Seven Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And Nurse Amy. That's right, in the dark heart of the city. It's the midwinter of our discontent. I'm content. And you're content? I am very You are pretty content, I'm very lady. content. I have, I have to I've admit. had a beautiful day. I usually have beautiful days with my husband. Unless he wants me to work extra hard. Work, 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 work. <laughs> That's right. You hear that every morning. I have a good at work At 8 ethic. o'clock in the morning. Yes. Work, work, hey, work. Hey, we got stuff to do. Let's get up. We got stuff to do. And that's the truth, folks. That's right. Well, we have uh, some plants that truth. are growing. We have some great tomatoes that, oh, are, yeah. that are coming up. We have carrots. They look we have so good. You know, corn. usually by now, because of the stupid heat and humidity down here in South Florida, trying to grow food is nearly impossible. You're constantly fighting fungus and aphids and right. all kinds of crazy things. Except for right These about now. These tomatoes look wonderful. Right. Right about now is the, so good. Is our agricultural summer. Yeah, I know. And there are lots of great stuff that you can grow here. Fight. It's the humidity. Yep, it's true. It's nearly impossible. And even in the winter. I mean, we have a lot of humidity in the summer, but we, we still have humidity now. Well, compa- I would say compared to a lot of other places, we certainly do. Yep. A little, little bit of tropical weather here. But the tomatoes look really good. The carrots are so cute. What are they, about an inch tall now? Oh, little bitty things. Little cute things. You had, to, you had to cull them. You had to I did. That's so sad. Weed them out, <gasps> some of them, so the others have room to I grow. I had to hundreds. And I was really careful on how I spread them out. And yet they still grow, like, right next to each other. So you have to call them. You have to space them out or you won't get any carrots whatsoever. I don't know how they do that with machines. They're, they've probably made some machine that is able to put one carrot seed down at a time and space them just perfectly. Well, if you know out there, let us know. My fingers can't do that. <laughs> We're going to give you our contact information later. No, there are, oh, wait a minute. They're actually little mechanical things, too. And also you can use, there's tape. Yeah, oh, that's probably... There are some things, but, you know, I was just being earthy. You are. So I plant everything with my fingers. You are. Like with the corn. Organic. Po- poke the hole. Natural. Put the corn seed in, cover it up. Earth poke, mother. Poke that's the what hole. You are. 
Put the seed in, cover it up, right? right. And then there pat it all down and water well. Right. Well, you know what we forgot Help. to do? We Wait. forgot to say, hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, the rocky road to reason in a rapacious world. I'm Joe Halton, MD, and I am also known as Dr. Dr. Bones, Bones, and I am constantly interrupting. She wants to say something. What do you want to say? Speak. I was just going to talk about the corn. Oh, the corn. <laughs> you're all worried about. Well, I would the, like you're all worried about some show. Uh, yes, identifying show. what are the we, show is are that we are doing this? right now. Yes, is this being recorded. Yes, we're recording. We're just having it. a conversation. You're having a conversation with millions yeah, of people. Or, I doubt millions, I doubt, but, I doubt but many thousands. But of I will people, say, I will say, are. to whom is listening? Thank you so much. We really do appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to listen to little old me and him yammer away about some topics hopefully that educate you but i i do want to mention my corn because i'm very excited about it all right we didn't grow corn corn last year right what kind of corn did you plant we're growing glass glass corn glass corn yeah it has another word in there but anyway the colors are just spectacular. So this so will I be. I cannot oh. wait to see it. So these we'll have will beautiful be beautiful decorative corn in the right, fall. For the fall, and we right. love to decorate. We'll bring some of it with us up to Gatlinburg, right? And we'll put it in the front of the house with a couple little bays, a uh, bay, bales of hay. Uh huh. And we can't put pumpkins because the bears eat the bears pumpkins. eat the pumpkins. They'll probably eat oh, the corn they too. They'll eat the corn. They probably oh no. Will. <laughs> Oh, shoot. Well, you know what we well, can we'll do? we'll find out. We can attach it to the railing on the porch, on the top part of the porch. Okay. Up so where the house number is. they can reach. Yeah, we can okay. do that. I All don't right. think they would climb up there to get that. But anyway, very decorative, very pretty. Blues and pinks and purples and oranges and Beautiful yellows. Corn. All right, well, it's good. I'm looking forward and to it. And they call it glass because it sort of has a shiny sheen to it. Uh-huh. So very interesting. I'm. I can't wait for well, that. I can't wait to see it. Also, so and several different types of carrots. We had mentioned the carrots mm-hmm. and a few peppers. Yes, we have some peppers. So, and of course, oh, the, and our orange is in bloom. Yes, yes. It's the time of year for citrus to flower, and so we're having oh, thousands the, of flowers. The oh blooms my God. are gorgeous. We have a grapefruit tree, an orange tree. The we have orange a, a lime is blooming. Tree. What's the little one that's blooming? Which one? Was that the key lime? or the? Yeah, we have a, no, that's a Myers lemon. The Myers lemon is and blooming. And we have a key lime that will probably bloom soon in the next few weeks. So very interesting stuff. Lots of stuff going on in the old garden at the... Oh, and that sugar cane we cut down is coming back. Yes. Did you see? Did yeah, you notice that? Yeah, we have the red Brazilian sugar cane that was given to us by the, the guy who helps us with our landscape. I'm sorry. You know what? I didn't mean the sugar cane. Our sugar cane's doing great. That's on the oh, side what are you of, talking about? I meant the cotton. Oh, cotton. That's what I meant. Island cotton. I got a little confused for a second. Okay, well, we have island cotton. The cotton, cotton is coming back. back. We had that's hacked right. that down to the ground. Right. This time I'm going to make it more bushy instead of laying. Yeah. It grew like, like nine feet. But and it, that is very uncottony of it. It produced two years in a row. Yeah. And it's I mean, this is some nice, not, yeah, some it's not dying nice because we don't have this winter. So it's just cotton that's growing back. Yeah, it likes the area. Yeah, it's... it's uh, Pretty cool. Well, guess what? This is not a gardening show. This is the Survival Medicine Hour where you'll find, and we are, I am Joe Alton, MD, and you are? I'm Amy Alton. I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. 
Also known as Nurse Amy. That's right. Although and I, we may have mentioned that at the very, very beginning. Oh, did we? Nurse I, Amy it, and Dr. I don't Bones. even remember. But did we mention <laughs> our website? No, Doom, not yet. Doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. We are. Who are we? We are indeed the dynamic duo, the spectacular spouses, the courageous couple. <laughs> and we are here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a worrisome wallaby? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only, obviously. <laughs> and do not represent entertainment. Yeah, and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when the times they are changing and trouble's in the air, you're going to want to have the knowledge of how to keep people healthy after a disaster. Will you know what to do when you become the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble? Well, if that happens... Are you going to have the training? Are you going to have the supplies? Are you going to have, well, most of all, the gumption to do the job? Just show the world that you've got more sense than the good Lord gave a garage full of grasshoppers and get some training, get some education while you're at it. How about a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated Never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll help you make your workplace, your school, your church, your home, gosh, your vehicles safer. And sure enough, they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. I want you guys out there to compare our kits for contents for quality and cost with anybody else's stuff. And you'll agree that our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. Our stuff, I'll tell you, is approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. Does that surprise you? I'll bet it doesn't. Well, drop us a line, Caroline. Why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? It's easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on our Facebook group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones and Nurse Amy. And, of course, our regular Facebook page has all the links to everything that we do and that's Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel. If you love videos, you can check out DR Bones Nurse Amy. And all of the links to all of these things are found at the top of doomandbloom.net. Little icons, just push on it. It'll take you to where you want to go. That's right. It allows you to subscribe to our feed and all sorts of good stuff like that so you do us a big favor make an old man very happy that that old man is me by the way <laughs> and connect with us well hey here's one last 
Shameless plug. One, one, last one. Please, please, please stay with us. I promise that I won't do anything more. Our new book is Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. And what it is is a look into the fish and bird antibiotics that I've been writing about all these years and the infections that they are helpful to cure or prevent. About 300 pages long is not as big as our 700-page survival medicine handbook because it just concentrates on the diseases that are infectious in nature, bacterial mostly, and the antibiotics that are available to the average person without a prescription and the diseases those antibiotics cure. So this is all the stuff that I've been writing about all these years that I believe, honestly believe, with all my heart, that in wise hands will save people that otherwise might not survive times of trouble. I can confidently say you have never read a book like this from anybody else that's a medical professional. This is not stuff you learn at your cert class or even from books like Where There Is No Doctor. In Alms Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, we discuss all sorts of infectious diseases, those that are common now and those that will become common if we're thrown off the grid, how antibiotics work, how to use them wisely, individual antibiotic dosing, side effects, allergies, pregnancy and pediatric considerations, information about expiration dates, some that will surprise you, uh, establishing sick rooms for epidemics, dealing with open wounds, wound infections, things like that, and a comprehensive list of supplies that will make help make you, with some of, t- of your time and effort, an effective survival medic. If you want to be prepared for disasters, you're going to want Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings in your survival library. Remember, our books are meant for situations where there is not a functioning modern medical system. If there is, for goodness sake, get to a certified medical professional ASAP. What's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we skipped a week uh, last week talking about radiation. I had a three-part series, and I wanted to give you a break from that. But I do want to finish the topic today by talking a little bit about decontamination. Uh, Generally speaking, the most effective method of decontamination after a nuclear event, whether it's a meltdown or a nuclear detonation, is simply removing your clothes. You probably should toss them, honestly, and taking a shower to wash off all the radioactive particles that were in fallout. And we talked about all the, what fallout is and all this stuff in previous shows, so just check back on our blog talk feed or on our website, and you'll learn a lot about radiation. Now, the air is not radioactive, but there is dust in it, and that needs to get off your body. That is the fallout. You want to use lots of soap, but do not use very hot water. Don't scald yourself. Don't scrub yourself. Don't scratch your skin or do anything that could cause breaks in the skin. Your skin, remember, helps protect the inside of your body, and it does that from infection, but also does that from radioactive materials as well. I mean, it's okay to wash your hair with shampoo or soap, but do not use conditioner, interestingly enough, because it actually causes radioactive material to actually stick to your hair, and it is not something that you will find very healthy. It's not a recipe for a good outcome. Now, you want to keep cuts and abrasions covered when you're washing to keep them from getting radioactive material in open wounds, and of course... Uh, If that's the situation, it's entirely possible you might not be able to take a shower in 
a survival setting. So if, if that's the case, at least wash your hands, face and face and the parts of your body that were exposed to uh, radioactive fallout at a sink or a faucet. Use soap again and plenty of water if you, if you have it. If you don't have access to a sink or a faucet, at least use a moist wipe, a clean wet cloth or a damp paper towel to wipe the parts of your body that were uncovered and pay special attention to your hands and face because they could go to your eyes or your nose or your mouth and really cause trouble. So this is where eye wash would come in use too. Yes, eye wash would be an excellent yeah, thing have to have. Yeah, extra fluids. And I think that everybody should have some moist wipes or some... Uh, yeah, antiseptic wipes. They give those to you at some restaurants. Sometimes you, right. when you buy chicken wings, right, they're exactly. saucy. <laughs> right, exactly. BZK wipes are also just as good. Yep, absolutely. Even diaper wipes right. would be very yes. handy. That, these things are all really useful things to have, and they would. Because you might you were, not have, like you right. said, running water that isn't contaminated. Exactly. And then you're just turning around putting more contaminated things on yourself. So at least you would know maybe the wipes would, would help cleanse you of some contamination. Right. We'll get some of that those particles off you as fast and, as possible. And of course, you want to put the used wipes uh, in a plastic bag or some other sealable container. You want to place the bag in an out of the way place, away from your pets and your children. That's and, where those you know, red folks. biohazard bags come in. And handy. that's right. Yeah, a lot of our kits actually have biohazard. You know, bags. I should put those up on the store. Yes, I, I think, think those are would. awesome things to have they for a awesome. million reasons. It, exactly, I think it makes a lot of they sense. They don't take up much room if you throw them in the trunk of your car. No, not at all. Not at all. I think. And if you had to pick idea. up roadkill, you could put it in one of those. Yeah, just yum. on an everyday basis. Yum. I didn't say yum. Oh, you didn't say yum. I, well, I said yum. That was me. It was just to help clean up America. That's all. Oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds like a source of protein to me. Oh gosh, I guess it depends on how long it's been since it has since been eaten, deceased. Right? Ooh, speaking of which, we saw something getting eaten today. Oh yeah. Remember? Well, I don't know about you guys out there, but we have lots of buzzards where we are. They like big to ones. come down to South Florida in the winter, and they're they big. hang out they in the big. palm trees in front of one of the developments. Right. Just this one development. Really annoy people there. I'll tell about you six or seven o'clock in the evening. I guess it depends on on what time of the year it is. Now it's probably a little earlier, but just before it gets dark, if you look up in the entrance of one of these developments, the palm trees are just covered in these giant black vultures. Right. Well, and it, it's so ominous. Well, all I have to say, if that I mean, was happening I'm glad in front I'm of... I'm not living in that development. If that was happening in front of my development, there'd be a lot of buzzard burger <laughs> for dinner. But That's we'd use an say. air gun. We'd have to yeah. hide behind palm trees because yeah. I'm sure we'd get arrested for using an air gun around here. <laughs> I know. Well, I'll tell you... Debbie Wasserman Schultz would come out of her house and get yes. us. <laughs> Who happens to live just a couple of blocks away from us. Amazing. Well, anyhow... One other thing that might be helpful in terms of radiation is, well, praying for rain. Rain is a good thing at the time of or after a radiation event. It washes the dust from the air. It dilutes itself into runoff. So, therefore, yeah, the, the runoff is radioactive. But at least if it's raining, the, it becomes a dilute radioactive um, source of water. And, and how about drinking water, matter of fact? The CDC prefers that in a radiation event that you actually drink water, juices, 
and other drinks that are sealed in containers. And drinks, so drinks in your refrigerator, your freezer, they'd be probably safe to drink even if even if the fridge is no longer on. The, the package that your liquids are in does protect the liquid inside from most radioactive material. Although between you and I, if it was out in the open, I would definitely wipe down the outside of it. Water and other containers that are in your home, even uh, the toilet tank or the hot water heater, they also should be free of radioactive material and so could be a source of water for you in times of trouble. You might be surprised to know that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Protection, says you can still use tap or well water for cleaning yourself and your food. Now, even if the tap water is contaminated, you can still use it for decontamination. This, oh, okay. See, now, I was confused because I said the wipes would be handy because the water might be contaminated. Well, they might be. To wash. And, and I still think that it's a preferable thing to use. But the CDC reasons that any radioactive material that gets in surface water or groundwater sources is going to be diluted to very low levels very quickly by okay. the water there. Okay. And, so therefore, it's most likely safe to use for washing your skin. But your doesn't hair, and your mean clothing. it's perfectly doesn't, safe, right? They're not saying also that they're not saying that you really should ingest it. However, uh, so that's the thing. So you have to really, washing it off. Of course, right. you're in an emergency situation. You take just about any liquid source at that point to get it off of your skin. Yes, that's true. As fast as possible. But to drink it, you'd better to have bottled water instead of tap water. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, all this raises another question. How do you decide if somebody actually needs to be decontaminated? If you're wearing a radiation dosimeter badge, well, I mean, it's pretty cut and dried. It tells you how much radiation has been absorbed and... and Basically, you either have a lot, you're over the safe limit, or you're not. It's pretty cut and dried. Now, some people have these Geiger counters. We actually have yes, one. Yes, we do. Uh, it's a radiation detector is what that really is. Uh, after Fukushima uh, blew up the, uh, radi- the reactor, nuclear reactor there, after the earthquake and tsunami that hit that area, well, you saw everybody getting Geiger counted, so to speak. Right. You know, and the problem is that it's hard to interpret the readings because they vary from machine to machine. They're, the size of the probe ha- apparently has something to do with it and whether the machine was actually calibrated against a known source of radiation. I hope they would be. I mean, otherwise, I don't think that any of these readings would make sense. Uh, Geiger counter readings don't tell you what type of radiation a person, person was exposed to also. It was radioactive iodine, which thyrosafe or... Uh, another iodide tablet would help, or was it cesium that it isn't helped by that and has something like a 29-year half-life? Well, one thing that's important to know is that once radioactive particles get inside the body through breathing, but more importantly uh, from ingestion, it can remain in tissues and wreak all sorts of submicroscopic havoc, and it can do that for a lifetime. So let's talk a little bit about radiation sickness and whether there are filters that eliminate radioactive contamination from water. Well, last time we discussed the effects of radiation on the body at different levels of exposure and how much protection you get from different substances used as shelter materials. That was uh, a couple of weeks ago. Today we're going to talk about treating radiation sickness as well as preventing long-term effects. So How do you eliminate, is there a way to eliminate radiation from drinking water? That's something 
That's important to know too. Now, eliminating external contamination with fallout dust, that's important before any absorption of it goes into your body, right? You, you can accomplish that with simple soap and water. We talked about that. Simple, easy peasy. Internal contamination, a little more difficult issue. And emergency treatment usually involves dealing with the symptoms. So once you have been, uh, once you've absorbed the radiation one way or another uh, by ingesting or some other method, once you have the diagnosis of radiation sickness, there are methods that may help. And they may include antibiotics to treat infections, fluids for dehydrations, water pills to try to flush out some of the contaminants, uh, drugs to treat nausea and vomiting, things that are very common in radiation sickness. And severely ill patients, sometimes they do stem cell transplants and transfusions and all that kind of stuff. That, But these won't be uh, reasonable options, certainly, in a survival setting. Uh, the hard, That's a hard reality. And it tells you a little bit about the importance of having an adequate shelter to prevent excessive exposure, something we talked about in detail a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it also emphasizes the importance of having items like potassium iodide. Otherwise, uh, the brand name is called ThyroSafe that might help prevent the long-term effects of radiation exposure. Now, if radiation does not kill you right away, if you're not exposed to more than 500 rads of radiation, let's say, uh, if you are exposed to more than 500 rads, well, you're probably going to die. But if you're exposed to less than that, you still can have a long-term effect. And this long-term effect oftentimes presents itself as a higher incidence of cancer. Uh, and so this is something that is a pretty big issue. The kind of cancers that can occur uh, oftentimes involve the thyroid, especially if you've been exposed to a lot of radioactive iodine. Now, you want to do everything you possibly can to prevent the effects of radiation and to eliminate external contamination with fallout dust. Well, we talked about that. And what we need to do is we need to consider potassium iodide to protect against some long-term effects. Potassium iodide, if you take it orally, can prevent radioactive iodine from damaging the thyroid gland, which is the organ that it targets, and the usual adult dose for uh, potassium iodide or thyrosafe is 130 milligrams daily for about 7 to 10 days or for as long as exposure is pretty significant. Remember how we said the 7 to 10 rule? The 7 to 10 rule states that for every 7 times mm -hmm. the amount of time from the actual event, right. the radiation decreases to 10%. So therefore, if there was a radiation event that had a level, certain level of radiation at one hour mm -hmm. after, let's say, a nuclear bomb exploded, mm -hmm. at seven hours, that radiation level would be down to only 10%. At seven times seven, 49 hours, mm -hmm. it would be down to 1%. And Excellent. And it would be down in... Let's say about two That's weeks. That's pretty fast, actually. In about two about weeks, it would be down, right. down to one percent. Right. In about good. two weeks, it would be down to zero point one percent. And so that's that. How that goes? That's a sort of a physics rule with regards to that. So, usual adult dose one thirty one hundred thirty milligrams daily, seven to ten days. 
for children, the dose is half of that, 65 milligrams daily. The reason why I like ThyroSafe, that particular brand, is because it comes in the pediatric dose. So you get actually, instead of getting 10 pills of 130 milligrams, you get 20 pills of 65 milligrams, which means that you can actually treat two children. And the, since the children are the most likely to wind up with cancer over the, peri the period of their lives uh, after a radiation event more than adults would, well, sure enough, that would mean that you should always treat the kids first, right? Always, if you have a limited amount of potassium iodide on you, treat the kids first. They're the ones that are most likely going to suffer a long-term effect or, or damage from, from radio, uh, the radioactive iodine. Uh, you take the potassium iodide about 30 minutes to 24 hours prior to a radiation exposure, if, if you could. Uh, actually predict it, and that helps actually prevent the, the the epidemic of cancer that will result if no treatment is given. Radiation from the 1986 Chernobyl disaster accounted for more than 4,000 cases of thyroid cancer so far, mostly in kids uh, and adolescents that were exposed during that period of time. And there's still more and more cases that occur every year, cases that ordinarily would not have occurred if there was not that exposure. Uh, although there's a small amount of potassium iodide in, in your regular iodized salt, you know, Morton salt or whatever brand of salt that you happen to use, not enough is present to actually give you any protection by ingesting regular salt. Actually, it would take about 250 teaspoons of household iodized salt to equal one potassium iodide tablet. So that's a lot of salt. Now, pets also may be at risk for long-term effects from radioactive iodine, so it's recommended to consider maybe half a tablet uh, uh, daily for dogs. Uh, for a large dog, you would want maybe the full pediatric dose, and maybe a quarter of a tablet for small dogs. Uh, definitely for cats, I think about a quarter of a tablet would probably do. Now, if there is no potassium iodide and the, uh, during Fukushima, the main supplier of potassium iodide actually ran out, and you could not find it. So, indeed, you know, you might consider either getting getting enough now. I think Amy actually has it. You still have that on your store? Yes, I yeah. absolutely do. Because I know it's in one of our one or two yep, of our kits. I sure do. If you find yourself exposed to radiation but are not in possession of any potassium iodide, you could still use povidone iodine solution. And the brand name for that is Betadine. And what you would do is you would paint about eight milliliters of Betadine for an adult on the, either on, the, on your belly, on your abdomen, or your forearm, two to 12 hours prior to exposure, and you would reapply it daily. And enough of the iodine actually gets absorbed through the skin to give protection against radioactive iodine fallout. Now that uh, is, let's say, 5 milliliters, I think, to a teaspoon, I think 14 milliliters to a tablespoon, so eh, it's about a maybe a teaspoon and a half or so. For kids that are younger, however, you don't want to give them quite that much. Let's say somebody, that a kid that's under 150 pounds, uh, but at least three years or older, you want to apply maybe half of that. And for toddlers, maybe you want to apply a quarter, maybe two milliliters. In that circumstance, infants, maybe one milliliter. And so this also works for animals, by the way. If you don't have a way to measure 
Well, remember that a standard teaspoon, about five milliliters. I, if you do that, then it'll give you a good idea. I would discontinue the daily treatment after three to seven days or when radioactive levels have fallen to to safer levels. Remember, after 49 hours, two, day, two, two days, one hour, you're down to about 1% of the original dose of radiation in the area. Uh, be aware that those people who are allergic to seafood will probably be allergic to anything containing iodine. There's lots of iodine in seafood uh, and many, many types of seafood, especially uh, shellfish. Uh, adverse reactions can also occur if you take medicines like lithium, believe it or not. I didn't know that until so, uh, a while ago, but indeed lithium actually <clears throat> will cause adverse reactions if you uh, take iodine. It's also important to note that you can't drink tincture of iodine. You can't drink that stuff or betadine. It's poisonous if you ingest it. That's why you put it on your skin and let it be absorbed through the skin. So, speaking, speaking of drinking, and not, don't drink iodine, um, how can you get rid of radioactive materials in essential things like water? Well, right now you might consider reverse osmosis. That is an excellent water treatment. It's been identified by the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, as a best available technology for things like uranium, radium, and the alpha and beta particles and photon emitters that occur in a lot of radioactive materials. It can remove up to 99% of the radioactive materials in drinking water, as well as a number of other contaminants, as you can imagine. Reverse osmosis units also can be automated, and some are pretty compact, making them an option as a small system. So what is reverse osmosis? It's a pressure-driven membrane separation process, quote-unquote. It works by forcing water through a filter material with very, very tiny little pores, some as small as ten, one ten thousandth of a micron, so that almost nothing except water can possibly emerge from the other side. It certainly isn't cheap, and it does have limitations. I mean, it doesn't remove gaseous contaminants in water, such as carbon dioxide and radon, which is a uh, radioactive version. Um, Water hardness elements such as calcium and magnesium can decrease membrane efficiency. So that is something that can happen. It is very sort of delicate stuff that can be damaged even just by uh, water hardness. Now, bacteria can also foul the membranes, especially if there's a lot of it. And chlorine isn't good for most types of reverse osmosis filters either. But having said that, it's still the best technology that's widely available. Now, you may not have this system, and so you have to look at other things. What about activated carbon? There's activated carbon available. Uh, we actually have a bag of it here. Uh, there's some evidence that car activated carbon uh, can remove radioactive iodine. Well, it works by absorbing contaminants as water passes through it. But the problem is it has an advantage because it has a total capacity beyond which it won't absorb anymore. And when it does that, it sort of leaches out the bad stuff back into the water. Now, the EPA also recommends a process called ion exchange for removing radioactive compounds from drinking water. This is similar to the method used in water softeners. Uh, ion exchange removes contaminants when water passes through resins that contain sodium ions. The sodium ions readily exchange with the contaminants 
like uh, radioactive cesium would be one contaminant, and that has a big advantage because that is a super long-lasting, 29 years uh, half-life. It's a long-lasting product of a nuclear meltdown or a detonation. So the truth is maybe the best solution is to combine all three. There's activated carbon, reverse osmosis, and ion exchange. You could have all three. If one method doesn't do the job, the others have a chance to capture the radiation. Okay, well, enough of that. You know, we have, <laughs> yeah. that's a lot, that has been it is, three honey. of the last four weeks with all sorts of stuff on radiation, and hopefully we won't have a radiation event. Oh, now my that gosh. Hopefully North Korea will not be sending a lot of missiles. I'm actually, yeah, right. I'm actually surprised you didn't talk about um, earthquakes. There was a big earthquake in Peru. What oh, yes, like that's right, 7.5 yesterday. That's pretty big. That's, that's Sounds pretty devastating, too, if it hit the right spot. Well, the right spot was not Ecuador. You would not have wanted to be there because that's exactly where it hit. And it is sort of funny because there's really no season for earthquakes like there is for hurricanes. But yesterday's tremors occurred actually very close to where another major earthquake occurred last year in Peru. So there's something going on in that Region I know. Peru, it seems Ecuador, like a lot of activity. Yeah, in the uh, South American part of the Ring of Fire, uh, that that just goes all the way around the Pacific Rim. Well, the United States, luckily, is not really a. It's a candidate, but it has not been a victim right. of a major <laughs> earthquake since probably San Francisco and. 1906, I think, would be the worst one. There has been, there have been earthquakes that have killed people. Don't get me wrong. And on in California, there were people that died. I think in the 1980s, in an earthquake that occurred, uh, occurred there. I remember seeing some overpass that mm -hmm. crushed a number of cars. It was really horrific. But indeed, the funny thing about all this is that there are always earthquakes. And if you go to oh, the U.S. Geologic the Survey, Earth is yeah, constantly shaking, rattling, right. and rolling, honey. You look at the U.S. Geologic Survey, you'll see that there are earthquakes every day, anywhere from Oklahoma to the West Coast uh, and other places. Sometimes it just just surprises the heck out of you that they they would occur there. But essentially, the places that the earthquakes occur are usually located over what we call fault lines. A fault is a fracture in a volume of base rock that's in the Earth's crust. Well, some people have blamed climate change for the earthquakes that we've been experiencing, but the funny thing is the movement of the Earth's plates occurs miles below the surface, so I'm not so sure how the Earth's climate is really affected that much by it. I guess it's possible, but the truth of the matter is, is that these kinds of shifts occur so deep that, eh, I don't know. Uh, these shifts, by the way, are called seismic waves. And most people have heard of um, the Richter scale. The Richter scale is a measurement system for earthquakes from 0 to 10, or theoretically it can be more than 10, that identifies the magnitude of tremors at a certain location. And quakes that are less than 2.0, let's say, on the Richter scale, are very common occurrences. They're unlikely to be noticed by the average person. Uh, but each increase of one magnitude, magnitude isn't just an increase of one it actually increases the strength of the tremors by a factor of 10 
So if you had tremors that were at 3.0, that's 10 times stronger than a earthquake or tremors that are measuring 2.0 on the Richter scale. The highest intensity earthquake ever recorded using the Richter scale was uh, an earthquake in Chile in 1960. That was 9.5 on the Richter scale. Wow, that is pretty incredible. The funny thing is that not a lot of professional geologists are using the Richter scale these days. The newer, a newer measurement called the moment magnitude scale is thought to be more accurate for higher intensity quakes and it calculates each point of magnitude as releasing more than 30 times, not 10 times, but 30 times the energy of the previous one. Now, if a fault line shifts offshore, then it causes a tidal wave or a tsunami. In Fukushima, which we were talking about just a short time ago, the 2011 earthquake, which was 8.9 magnitude, spawned this huge tsunami, which caused major damage, loss of life, and meltdowns in the local nuclear reactors. Tsunami warnings were issued to both the Japanese uh, and also in the earth Ecuadorian earthquake that was reported yesterday, and hopefully that made a difference. The problem is that you never know how big a tsunami is actually going to be. The tsunami generated by a number of quakes turns out only to be a couple of feet sometimes, and it doesn't really make that much of a difference. So let's talk a little bit about surviving an earthquake. A uh, major earthquake is especially dangerous because of its unpredictability. Even a tornado you might see in the distance, you don't see an earthquake in the distance, and it's, as a result, you don't have the ability to really prepare much for it. You have to have your wits about you so that you have a plan of action if you're in an area, especially if you're in an area that's at risk. Researchers are working to find ways to determine when a quake will hit, but usually you don't have much warning. Now, you got to have a plan of action, right? Isn't that what preparedness is all about? Is right, because it a plan happens suddenly. Yes. There's no warning like the hurricanes. Even a tornado, they have a little bit of warning. Exactly. This is like bam. And whatever plan of action you have, you got to share it with every family member, even the children. You actually should share it with family members that don't even live with you in your own house because it's unlikely that a disaster will occur at the moment that the entire clan is together for somebody's birthday right. or anything like that. Right. So the truth of the matter is is that people have to know what you plan to do if an earthquake happens. So that's the thing. You, know, you might be at work, your spouse might be at home, or the kids might be at school, certainly you know, family members in other cities won't have any idea what's going on with you, so they need to know or have an idea what your plan of action would be. An important part of an earthquake survival plan is making everybody aware of where to meet in your immediate family. It could be immediate at the house or maybe a sturdy public building like a, like kids' school or an office building that might be earthquake resistance. And knowing where to meet in the event of a, any, any disaster, I mean, I'm thinking of earthquakes, but... Really, any disaster will give you the best chance of gathering your family and surviving together as a unit. So that's important. Now, you have to have, of course, uh, supplies for an earthquake. You want to have, well, guess what? A good medical kit. What a surprise, right? And you want to also have food and water. You, and you need a water filter, something like the mini Sawyer, the Life Straw, something that 
would be easy to carry with you if you had to uh, hit the road, Jack. Uh, power sources like batteries, solar chargers, uh, generators uh, would be useful. Medical supplies, uh, as I mentioned, tents, sleeping bags, camping equipment, that's always useful to have. Clothing that would be appropriate for the weather that you are dealing with most of the time. Uh, fire extinguishers, certainly for the home, would be very useful to have. Uh, a toolkit, including an adjustable wrench so you can turn off gas, water uh, in, in your home if, it, if there's a lot of damage. Uh, you want to have means of communications. You want to have cell phones, walkie-talkies, radios. You want to have cash. Don't forget the power outage that you may be most affected by is purchasing power. You need to have cash because you can't count on credit or debit cards. Uh, the, those systems for uh, verifying them to be up if the power is down. And of course, you want to always have your copies of important documents, including insurance policies. And so these are things that are very useful things to have. Yeah, you might consider scanning them and sending them in an email to yourself. These yeah, then are, you can access them anywhere when you finally get to some place with a, a internet and electricity. That, that's a great idea. Now, you know that you may not be the only person that has a plan of action. If, if indeed you're in an area that's at risk for earthquakes, the school system and maybe municipal authorities may have formulated their own disaster plan. They may have even designated certain shelters, certain buildings as quake-proof, and this may be the best place for you to go in those circumstances. You have to remember every town may have different precautions, so you have to inquire about your town's precautions in case of some seismic event. And always remember that they may or may not have the ability to deal with pets. So you, you probably need to know a little bit about that and take some precautions for your pets. And if, in any case, even if they do allow pets, it's likely they're not going to have food for pets. So make sure you have, bring some food for pets and a dish so that you can give the, your pet water and things like that. Now, besides these general supplies that I just mentioned, might be wise to put together a separate get-home bag to keep at work or in the car at all times. And with some non-perishable, maybe uh, power bars or, or granola bars, things like that, liquids, and especially a pair of sturdy and comfortable shoes, probably a good idea to have in the car in case the roads have been damaged to the point that you cannot get home in your car. So that is something to think about. I think a lot of people don't realize that you know, don't know if the roads were going to be damaged. Now, if you were in your home, it's important to know where your gas, electric, and your water main shutoffs are. And it's also important that everybody of a certain age knows how to turn them off if indeed there's a leak or an electrical short. you got to know where the nearest medical facility is, but you have to be aware that you might be on your own because medical responders in a big event are probably going to be overwhelmed and may not get to you quickly. So it's important for you to be able to know how to deal with bleeding and how to essentially get somebody through a, a trauma by having some medical supplies and by having the knowledge of how to use them. That, I think, is very, very, very important. Now, if you take a good look around your house, you might identify some fixtures like maybe chandeliers or bookcases that might be too unstable to withstand an earthquake. When you look at your cabinetry, you want to make sure that you don't have heavy objects on high shelves. You want to replace them to the bottom shelves. Well, that actually helps stabilize the actual shelving. And so if you have a bookcase, you don't want the heaviest books to be on the top shelf. You want them to be on the bottom shelf. And that 
will help in general stabilize and make them less likely to topple. Now these flat screen TVs that everybody has, these little huge TVs that we're, we're all getting, we could these could easily topple in an earthquake so you got to be sure they are fastened in place by with some type of screw or some kind of fastener so they to whatever you've got them on so that they do not just fall right over uh, you have to be sure to check out also pantry shelves for glass objects and things that could easily slide and topple off. That's something that's important. Not yeah. a great place to have a china collection. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> On loose shelves. Um, that, I'm with you. In, in the bedroom, you got to check the stability of everything. It might be, especially things that hang, might be hanging over the headboard of your bed. Oh, gosh. That is something because they no could easily fall over upon the bed. You. Right, because an earthquake could easily occur at night, and whatever is hanging over your head might land right on you. You know what else you have to worry about is the the ceiling fans. Make sure they're secured if you have ceiling fans. Yes, you're fans. right. Yes, ex exactly. Lanterns, Especially if you lighting, keep them on at night, sure. Anything directly above you. So let's see. These are things that you need to remember when the earthquake actually hits. And there are three words. Drop, cover, hold. When things start shaking, you got to have a cool head. That's going to be hard to do. Uh, and if you're indoors, if, get... I'll tell you what, if an earthquake hits here in South Florida, I pretty much guarantee you I'm going to start screaming. There you go. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Because I am not going to know what's happening. Well, you remember that we had... Uh, the sonic boom. A sonic boom from some jet fighters overhead. Yes, that broke yeah. the sound, the barrier, the right, sound barrier. Right. And Heading from Air Homestead Air Force. Exploded everybody's right. houses around here. The windows shook like they were rubber. You just see the, remember them see the just move. moving. Right. I'm surprised like they, they were didn't rubber. crack. I'm surprised they didn't crack. Oh, well, we had that ceiling crack. We just got fixed. Yeah. It's been, so, in, what, a year? Yeah, it has. Yeah, it's been happened year. with that. I should well, get I reparations to, for that. Yeah. Yes. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to continue to crack. So it sort of made its way from side to side, two walls. Uh -huh. I figured that's it. So we have it fixed. <laughs> okay. Now we just got to get it painted. <laughs> there you go. All right. Always something to do. Yeah, I know. So anyhow, the strategy is drop, cover, and hold. Get under a table, under a desk, something else solid. Hold on, and indeed, you, this cover that you wind up under may protect you from falling objects. So drop, cover, hold. And if there is no hard cover available, even a mattress might serve as a shield. Get in between the mattress and the box spring or get under the box spring. It might might actually help. Uh, if there's no cover available at all, head to the corner of an inside wall and stay there. Of course, you might choose to run out of the building. You're more stable, however, on your knees than standing or running. So get down to prevent a fall from causing injuries, especially if you're right in the middle of the quake. When the building is shaking, don't try to run out is what the CDC or ready.gov recommends, especially if you're on an upper floor. They say that you can easily fall downstairs or get hit by falling debris. Don't try to use elevators. Stay clear of windows, shelves, and kitchen areas. That's what you should do. Now, it's often taught that you should stand in a doorway because of the frame's sturdiness. However, it turns out that modern homes, really the doorways aren't much so more solid than any other part of the structure. So, eh, I'm not so sure that that is still what you should do or still the best advice. Once the initial tremors are over, then go outside. Once there, stay as far out in the open as you possibly can, away from power lines, chimneys, walls, and anything else that could fall on top of you. Now, I have to, having said all that, mm -hmm. these recommendations, 
I have to say that I might want to get out of that building. <laughs> I know. And well, you see so many bu- buildings collapse. I think it's going to depend on where you live and what the building standards are. I think you're right. If I'm in some third world country, I'm probably getting out of that building. Yeah, that thing is I've seen fall. too many collapse. Yes. Too many. Now, if you're in your car, you could possibly be in your automobile, you know, and so you want to get out of traffic as quickly as possible because other drivers are probably going to be less level-headed than you are. Don't stop your car under a bridge or an overpass. I've seen with that. Collapses, right? right, Collapses. Power lines, light posts, these are also mistakes to be under. They're likely to topple in a major quake. Stay in your vehicle while the tremors are active Turn on and turn on the radio to find out more about what's happening with this event. So you are at least partially protected if you're in your vehicle. After the tremors stop, there's still dangers. Gas leaks are an issue. Uh, so watch out about camp, uh, using camp stoves inside, lighters, even matches, uh, generators. Even a, even a match could ignite a spark that could lead to an explosion. If you turn the gas off, you might consider letting the utility company turn it back on. Buildings that have structural damage may be unstable, have loose concrete which could rain down on the unsuspecting. That may be an issue. And the thing about generators, generators are useful, but they should be used not just outside. Don't use them inside at all. Don't use them just outside the door. you got to use them well away from the interior of the home. There was a family of four in Florida after Hurricane Irma that was hospitalized when a generator was used just too closely to the house's entrance. So that is pretty much the deal. We, there's a lot more to talk about with regards to that, but we don't have the time. We'll maybe consider it next time. I want to just mention that we do have classes, eight-hour classes. I want you to go to the classes page at doomandbloom.net. It will be in Tampa March 9th, Jacksonville March 16th, Western Florida March 23rd, Atlanta April 20th, Kodak, Tennessee near Knoxville on May 4th and other places as well. Don't forget to check them out. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.